Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. And guys, can grab a seat. The title of this message today is Quorum Dio. It's a plea for the church to live like God is imminent. So Coram Dio is a Latin phrase I believe we'll have for you on the screen here, meaning in the presence of God. Uh, Speaking of Coram Dio, R.C. Sproul has this quote. He says, to live Coram Dio is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God to the glory of God. So what my hope is this morning for us as we gather to see that we are called to live lives of Coram Dio before God, for his glory. We're called to live this way because he is imminent. Now that word imminent, I feel like we need to make sure we're on the same page before we move forward. What does this word imminent mean? What does it mean that God is imminent? Well, Wayne Grudem in his, his wisdom of his biblical theology uh, would say it this way. God is personal, imminent. He interacts with us as a person, and we can relate to him as persons. We can pray to him, worship him, obey him, and love him, and he can speak to us, rejoice in us, and love us. I believe that's the truth that we're going to see in our text this morning in Judges 12 and 13. We're going to finish up Judges chapter 12 the last couple of verses, and we're going to go through chapter 13 together this morning. And I believe that when we look at God's word this morning, we are going to see this truth, that God is imminent, that he is personable, that God is not far off and distant, despite what we may feel at times in our own heart, in our life, that our God is imminent. He is knowable, he is kind, he is caring, he is present, he is active. And not only the life of this story of the church of Israel, but us as the church today as, as we get to see that God is imminent. But first, let me ask the Lord for his grace over our time together this morning. Father, we can only pray to you because you are here in our midst now through your spirit. So God, as we approach your word this morning, God, would we remember this truth that you are with us, that you are personable, you are knowable, that you are intimately involved, you know our comings in and our goings out, God. So would our hearts be set on that this morning and understand the implications that all of our life is laid bare before you, even now in this moment, God, so we pray for your grace that we would be able to understand your truths and see you for who you are and intimately involved, God, and that you would give me the words to encourage your church, to rebuke when necessary, to apply the gospel always. Would we be encouraged by seeing you are near to us this morning? So, Father, this is all for your name and your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
So last week, Pastor Bailey faithfully taught through uh, the first seven verses of Judges chapter 12, where we saw the close of our sixth cycle of sin and salvation for Israel. Uh, and today we will see uh, the, the beginnings of the seventh cycle. So uh, what was the result of that completed cycle? What was the result of Jephthah being raised up to deliver Israel and then him delivering them from their oppression of the Ammonites? What was the result? It was peace. We see this uh, over these first seven uh, verses uh, as we conclude in chapter 13. There's a 25-year period of peace because of this. Let's read these verses together. So look with me in chapter 12, verse 8. After him, Abizan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside of his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. Catch this. And he judged Israel seven years. So that's the first seven years of peace. Verse 10, then Abizan died and he was buried in Bethlehem. Verse 11, after him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel and he judged Israel for 10 years. So we see the first seven in this 10, that's 17 years of peace. Then Elon and the Zebulonite died and was buried at Elijon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel the Perithianite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys and he judged Israel eight years. Here we see the 25 years of peace. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithianite, died and was buried at Perithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. So we see this 25 years of peace. Do we think that this 25 years of peace will endure? Do we think this peace in the land of Israel is going to continue? No, we know that by now in the cycle of sin and salvation that we've entitled this series, this peace will not continue. But let me ask you a question. We see 25 years of peace, and we've seen this cycle of sin and salvation over and over and over again. Do you think that the nation of Israel spent more time in slavery, or did they have more time of peace? We've seen now six times of Israel being sold into slavery because of their disobedience. And we, in this entire series, have been relating ourselves to this nation of Israel and seeing that there is just punishment for our sin. But do we think that there is more slavery or more grace? I know in my own heart, in talking to some of you this week, it just feels natural that it seems like in this, this book of Judges, it's so dark that there's more times of slavery, but it is a three-to-one ratio, 311 years of peace to only 127 years of slavery. God, indeed, is a gracious God. He is compassionate. He is intimately equated with his people. And this is what we're seeing, that God is gracious over and over again. As we start into chapter 13, we're going to see that this peace does not endure, and that God again raises up another people group to press Israel into further dependence on God. Look with me in verse 1, and the people of the Lord, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So we saw this 25 years, but we see 40 years now of turmoil that they're about to be sold into. This is the start of our seventh cycle of sin and salvation. This will be the last judge we see in the book of Judges. 
This is the starts of the story of Samson, one of the most famous judges that we know in the book of Judges, that he had to be raised up because of this sin of Israel. But although that the Lord gives them into the hand of the Philistines, he does not do this in a disinterested sending away. Remember, God is imminent. He is personally vested in Israel, even in their captivity. Even in discipline, God is near. Let us not be so narrow-minded to equate difficulties to God's absence. That God is indeed present, is not the belt wielder by the, the disciplining parent. Isn't the parent holding that belt still? They're present even in the dis- discipline. Is not the instrument of discipline still in the hand of a loving father as the instrument of God's discipline or the Philistines? No, this discipline is not sign of God's absence, but God's presence in reproving his children. We have seen this over and over again. But this is the question we're asking ourselves this morning. If we're to live quorum Dio before God and remembering that God is always with us and our entire life is to be lived before God, how can we see that he is imminent? How can we see that he's personable? How do we see this in Judges chapter 13 this morning? So if you're taking notes, the first way that I believe that we are going to see that God is imminent is that God is present. We'll see this in verses 2 through 7. That God is present in this story. Read along with me. Verse 2, There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 6, then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Here in these verses, you may be asking, how do we see that God is imminent here? This seems like a story of Manoah and a wife and this angel of the Lord. We're introduced to these three characters. That Manoah and his wife, we don't even catch her name in this story, but we know that she's barren and that the angel of the Lord knows this. We saw this in verse 3. He goes and he appears He is present with them. Now, we could spend our time this morning either looking at Manoah and his wife, or we could look at the third character in this story, the angel of the Lord. And what I'm convinced of this morning, what would be more beneficial for us is to look at this angel of the Lord and to truly see and understand why Samuel was talking about this angel of the Lord, this author of the book of Judges, why the Holy Spirit inspired these words for the angel of the Lord to be there. Who is this angel of the Lord? This is God. This is a theophany. If you're not familiar what a theophany is, A theophany is this, 
Theophanies are instances of divine self-revelation in which God manifests himself to humans. The word theophany, which means appearance of God, comes from the Greek roots theo, meaning God and phanio, to appear. This happens all throughout the Old Testament, that there is a physical manifestation of God in the flesh. This is not Christ in the incarnation, not coming in the flesh as he will, as Christ comes to save his children from their sins, but this is an appearance of God. This is a presence of God. This is God showing, even in the Old Testament, that he is not far off. Even in a period of time where Israel is in some of their deepest rebellion and idolatry against him, he is present. He manifests himself presently. So I, I'm just hoping we catch this glimpse this morning of how God is imminently present in our life. How was God imminently present here? He appeared. Do we see that in verse 3? And the angel of the Lord appeared. God did not have to make himself manifest, but he did. He showed himself in a great splendor and awe to Manoah and his wife. But not only did he appear, but he spoke. In a period of time where Israel as at large is just in open rebellion. God didn't only show himself, but he spoke to them. He was aware of her barrenness. He was intimately involved in this woman's life. But also when he spoke, his message was a message of grace. To this barren mother, he was saying there's an impending child coming. There's a message of grace to the nation of Israel that their son will begin to deliver Israel. This is God's grace to them. Like God was imminently present in the life of Manoah and his wife, he is imminently present in the life of all of his children. We see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In this most famous passage here in Isaiah 7.14, We see, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That name Emmanuel means God with us, that God is always present with his children. The Lord has proved his presence with us by preserving us in our hour of temptation, comforting us in the doldrums of our despair and authoring our deepest joys. God is always present with his children. If you are a child of God, there's never been a moment that you have plotted this course of life alone. God has always been present with you. He may not make himself manifest in visible form as he did in this theophany, but he has done far better by sending the Spirit of God, the great comforter, to not only be the seal of your salvation, but the very comfort you need in your pains. He is the balm for your chaotic soul. In a time such as this, when we look around the world and see nothing but chaos, is it not a good reminder that God is imminent, that he is present, that our life is quorum Dio, that we are always before God? As I was thinking about it this week, something happened. As I was thinking about this idea of God's presence always being with us, although he's not manifest, the spirit is still with us. My wife was leaving. He, she was leaving the house, and, and my daughter, KK, was sitting on the sofa. 
And my wife left, and she had told KK that, that Daddy's here. He's in, he's in his office. He's just in the other room. But when she left, when she went out that door, the cry of my daughter rose up, and I could hear her crying. And I come out of my office. I come out of my study, and she has forgotten that although mom is gone, that her father is here. He is present. And what did I do in that moment besides wrap my daughter in my arms and comfort her? Have we forgotten that God is always present? He is always here. Have we forgotten that we have the Spirit, the great comforter, now? Have we forgotten that this theophany is a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Christ, that Christ has already come. The word was made manifest and became flesh, and he's come and he dwelt with us here. And when he left, he did not leave us as orphans, but he sent the Spirit back to be our great comforter. Every second of our life is in the presence of God. Church, would we live in light of this? What can we learn from the story of Manoah and his wife in this first section? We see that God is present even in our pain. For a second, place yourself in the shoes of Manoah's wife. A woman that's barren, not only barren, but has no children. Think of the hopelessness that is felt in that moment, and God enters into the fray and speaks comfort. Your pain may not be infertility. Your pain may be a lost loved one who doesn't know Christ. Your pain may be depression. It may be that you're plagued by habitual sin. Your pain may be physical ailments. It may be loneliness, but God is present. He is there. He comes to you in your pain like he came to this couple. How does he do this? By his spirit. He also speaks to you in your pain. How does he do this? Through the inerrant, inspired word of God. You do not need an angel to be manifest to you in a sign and wonder to know the will of God. You simply have to pick up his inspired word, and he will be there and comfort you. He also has good news in your pain. And as we said, it may not be the good news that you're wanting or thinking as the good news, the best news for Israel was that the Philistines were raised up to oppress them so that way they would depend on the Lord all the more. God is present in your pain. How does he have good news in your pain? It's not that you're going to get out of whatever pain you're in. What is the good news in your pain? It's the good news that we always have. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that Christ was crucified and took on the weight and the burden of your sin, that you were separated from God for your willful disobedience against him. And even as you are in Christ now, you still at times headlong go after sin, but Christ has died and sent the Spirit, and he is sanctifying you even now through his word, through this community, through his Spirit. Perhaps your pain and your anxiety is over COVID-19, Perhaps the pain that you're feeling now is as Pastor Bailey faithfully talked to us this morning, the Lord's Supper, about the injustice of the killing senselessly of perhaps of George Floyd, a brother in Christ. I, I can neither be articulate enough 
nor have the right words to say to please all sides of the argument. And praise God that I don't have to, that you don't have to, that the answer to this injustice is always to do what Christ has called us to do, to seek justice because he is a God of justice. But what that means is first and foremost, understanding justice as Pastor Bailey faithfully taught us. That we don't want justice, we want grace. And what this world needs more than our thoughts, our witty retorts, what this world needs right now as we look around the riots going around the country right now, this world needs the gospel not more than ever, but as it always has. And all that we are seeing right now is a catalyst for the darkening, revealing of the soul. That we are depraved above all else. That we would minimize the pain of someone else who was brutally, brutally murdered. Or that we would think that uh, change to institutions or laws or anything else will fix what is wrong, what has been shattered since Genesis 3 is the fall, sin. And our call as Christians is to advance the gospel always. What is the only thing that can make a dead heart come to life that wants to have reconciliation? What's the only thing that Paul talks about in the book of Romans that can break down the dividing lines of hostility of no Jew nor Greek? It is the gospel. And I pray that we as the Branch Church Milledgeville would see that, that we would not turn a deaf ear nor eye to those that are hurting, but that we would see that God is present now. He is reigning now. This does not catch him off guard at all. But this is simply going to be the instrument to bring about further salvation of the son and daughters of our king. How? Through you. Through using your voice in this moment to speak. Because God is imminent. He is imminent now before you, the very thoughts that you're having. He's imminent now before the inner recesses of your heart of what you're thinking about. The sin that you thought was secret this morning is laid bare before God Almighty. Would we live, quorum Dio, that God is imminent? How else do we see that God is imminent in Judges 13? I think the second thing that we'll see is that God listens. God listens. Read along with me in verses 8 through 14. Then Manoah prayed. What a beautiful string of words. In light of his wife's story, he prays to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Notice his confidence in this promise. Verse 9, And God listened. And God listened. Do you feel as I feel at times that your prayers hit a ceiling, that God is not present, that he doesn't know your cry? As I did not ignore the cry of my daughter, your heavenly father, who is so much more, who knows how to give good gifts, does not ignore the cries of his children. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Noah, Manoah, her husband, was not with her. 
Verse 10, so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So we see here that Manoah prays. God listens to the prayer. He comes back to the wife in the field. Now this is subjective. Hear me say this. This is my opinion but I believe that he came to this wife in the field as she's in prayer, as she is in longing, as she is hopeful now because of this word. Again, we see the imminence of this God. But she runs back to the husband and the angel graciously waits. The husband comes back and does what all husbands do. They don't listen well to their wives, so they have to ask again what was said. The angel of the Lord God here was patient and reiterates what he has said. This is the third time this has been reiterated. What is being reiterated here? Although we are not focusing on this aspect of the story, we will come back later in the story of Samson and talk about what this Nazarite vow is. It's a consecration, of being a set aside for God. It's important to note that it's been mentioned three times here because of how important it is that they are to do. But how Here in this text, do we see God is imminent? We see that he listened to the prayer of Manoah. Like God was imminently listening to the prayer of Manoah, he imminently listens to the prayers of all of his children throughout the history of God's covenant keeping with his people. While we see in this cycle of sin and salvation, perhaps we have noticed and we've seen that cycle over and over that there's sin and that he sells them into slavery and then there's that supplication, that crying out. This is the only time in all seven cycles we will not see this supplication. I believe we will see that because this is showing the downward spiral of the sin of Israel as they are no longer even calling out in supplication. God still delivers even when his children do not cry out. But we have seen all throughout scripture that God answers the cries of his children. Exodus 2, 23 through 24, when Israel was in slavery in Egypt and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He heard the cries of his children, this covenant promise that he made through this household of Abram. He's hearing those cries. We saw this at the beginning of Judges, that God is hearing the cries of the nation of Israel during this time. Judges 2.18, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That God always hears the cries of his children What did Christ do in Luke 22 before his crucifixion, the night before? Did he not spend his final hours here before he was taken away in prayer? Was he not crying out 
to his father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. If this cup can be passed from me, let it be so, but not my will, yours be done. Do we assume that because Christ went to the cross, that prayer was not heard? No. The prayer was heard and answered according to the the good of the children of God and the nation of Israel for God's revealing glory. Christ too prayed. Church, I, I pray that we would live Coram Dio in light of this, that God hears your prayers, that you would pray in a manner that you believe that God hears, that you wouldn't pray such small, feeble, weak prayers that are uttered like a whisper in the night that cannot be heard, but you would pray in a manner knowing that the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, that knit you together in your mother's womb, that knows every hair on your head, that breathed the stars into existence, can and will answer prayer according to his will, his glory, and your good. Prayer is the battle cry of the saint. While sometimes we go before our Father and don't even know what to pray, we are promised that God is imminent with his spirit in us and that he interprets our groanings too deep for even words. That God hears your prayers. This is why we are called all throughout Scripture to pray without ceasing, to make your prayers abound with joy, to submit your request to God, and the God of all peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That we are called to go before our Father because he listens to our prayers. If we are not in Christ, what does Scripture say of prayer? For those that are not in Christ, even the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. Do not forget what gift you have in prayer. Do not neglect such a great gift and grace of God that you can approach boldly the throne of grace with confidence. That you will not just find mercy there, but you will find grace. This is the gift that we've been given. The Spirit hears your words. As we've been saying this over and over, that God is imminent, quorum Dio, it's not only just your words of prayer that he hears, he hears all of your words. Scripture says that every idle word that comes out of our mouth, we will have to give an account to God. This includes our lying. This includes our gossip. This includes our slander. This includes what you think was whispered only to that friend that God heard. That we have a God that is imminent and that we see in this passage that is not only caring, but that God will by no means pardon the wicked. We are called to live in light of this holiness of God. How else do we see the eminence of God revealed in this theophany? Let's continue reading. I believe that the third thing we'll see that God is active. That God is active. Verses 15 through 23. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. So again, here we're seeing they're not understanding who this actually is. We saw this earlier in the wife saying it was an appearance like the son of man. 
verse 17, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. So he's refusing this offering. We saw this offering to the angel of the Lord earlier in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he had no clue it was the angel of the Lord. He, he's offering not just a sacrifice, but hospitality. It's a young goat. It's a meal. And when the angel of the Lord declines this, his interest is piqued. And he asks, who, who are you? What is your name? What does the angel of the Lord say here? Verse 18, why do you ask my name seeing it? It is wonderful. The Hebrew there for wonderful means indescribable. It's the same Hebrew word used to describe the name of Yahweh. This is why commentators and church theologians throughout church history have interpreted this to be a theophany. Because even when asked of his name, he says, I can't give it to you, not because I'm unwilling, but because it is so indescribable. When we saw that earlier in the chapter, when we uh, look back to verse 11, when, a, when Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, what? He said, I am. Some commentators translate that to all capitalization of I am, as in the I am, the great I am, the name that God gave to Moses when Moses went to free his children from slavery. He says, I am, I am the I am. I am Yahweh, that's who I am. Now, there's much debate throughout church history whether or not this is translated correctly. But as your pastor, I believe, based on those so far, that we see that this is God, that he is active. So what does Manoah do? Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering. Notice he offers a grain offering now because it is no longer just hospitality, but a sacrifice. It is worship to God. And offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. He offers this sacrifice on a rock to the one who works wonders. This is a reference to them uh, having a miraculous child, although she was barren. But what we're also about to see is a wonder that he works on that sacrifice. Verse 20, and when the flame went up Toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. So the Lord called down fire, consumed this sacrifice, just like in Judges chapter 6. That he worked a wonder there. They didn't even have fire. They just sacrificed the goat and put the grain on top of this rock and fire consumed it. What was their response? What would be your response? We see it in verse uh, 20. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. This is worship. They realize in this moment who this is. It says, now Manoah and his wife were watching. They fell on their faces to the ground. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord. At that moment, he realized who he was speaking with. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. He does not say we have seen an angel. He says we have seen God, that he believes that he has seen God. This is why he believes he is going to die all throughout Scripture. Whenever God is revealed, 
It's typically revealed with uh, cataclysmic events of lightning, of thunder, of earthquakes. But there's times where God reveals himself in the small, still whisper. And this is one of those moments of revealing himself in a way that he's made part of himself known, not his fullness. Moses could not even see his fullness as the glory of the Lord passed by. But just like most men were fearful when when they saw this, Manoah was fearful. But as the scripture says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's good that he has a helper. We see that it is good that Manoah has his wife. For she rightly interprets what happens here in light of Manoah's rightful fear of the Lord. Verse 23, but his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. This trifold blessing of God is revealed here, that God was imminently active in the life of Manoah and his wife. How was he imminently active? He led them in worship of himself. He told them to make an offering, And he not only told them to make the offering, but he caused the fire to come up. He accepted their offering. He has shown them wonderful, marvelous things. He's told them wonderful things. So how do we see that God is active? Man, he is active in the helping them and the accepting of them. Church, I I pray that we would live Coram Dio in light of this, that God is always active in the lives of his children. That God is always active, specifically, hear me, specifically in what we're doing right now, worship. That God's presence is with us always, but in the moments where we are worshiping God, God is always with us. Why? Because we see here a sacrifice that God accepted and that he was pleased with. Do you believe that God is calling you to do a sacrifice like this? By no means, we know we're freed from that. We no longer have to live under this uh, Levitical law. But let me tell you what, we all absolutely act as if though we have sacrifices to make for God to be pleasing to us. There's a reason reason asceticism of self-denial and even punishment became a thing in the church. We might not go as far as uh, what has happened throughout church history and self-harm, But we absolutely, uh, as we talked about in our missional community two weeks ago, we don't seek for repentance, but perhaps penance. We feel like we have to pay God back for the free gift of salvation that he has given. And we feel like we have to make a sacrifice. I have to wake up early and come to church. I better not say that lie. I better not cuss. I better do the right thing. I'm going to put an extra dollar in for tithe this week. That person on the street, I'm going to give them a meal because I know that's what I'm called to do. Perhaps I'm even going to speak up and talk about injustice because I owe God. What could we ever repay God that he does not already own? What type of sacrifice is God asking of you? If you're living your life from one moment to the next, seeking to try to please God and not realizing if you're in Christ, he is already pleased with you, friend, you're in legalism. You're not in the gospel. 
if you are living your life, perhaps even knowing the grace of God in this gospel that we so talk, but you live your life functionally as an atheist would or secular humanist would and trying to appease a celestial uh, infinite being that perhaps you think is just wound the universe up and let it go. No, friends, he is intimately involved and equated. Why do we know this? How do we know this? The inspired word of God because God himself became flesh in the incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. Christ came and he provided a far better sacrifice than you ever could offer. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a single, that is him, himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected all time, that's future tense, For those who are being sanctified, that's present tense. If you think that the only way that God can be pleased with you is by your efforts, that is not the gospel. And even if you understand this gospel, if you live functionally this way, you are living functionally as a Pharisee. There is no sacrifice pleasing to God save for the perfect atonement of the Lamb of God, Christ. Don't believe me? Isaiah 1, 13 through 14. This is God himself speaking of any other sacrifice that we could offer. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is previous to Christ. This is all the sacrifice we could ever offer. This is our life that we think we could offer to God. Not us at our worst, but us at our best does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ. Perhaps you've never heard that. That is the good news of the gospel. But if you have heard that, hear that again and again and wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and preach that to yourself again. And when you look at scripture, look for that truth over and over again because that is the only anchor for your soul. Christ crucified for your sin. It was your sin and it was God's wrath towards your sin that held Christ on that cross. He was imminent then as he is now. The same God now lives within us in this assembly that we just read, that he could not endure a solemn assembly. What are we doing now but assembling? We are coming together as the church, as a household of faith, not to offer sacrifices to, to please God, but as Romans 12 says is the only pleasing sacrifice that we can now offer is our lives to God. We come together back in this assembly to offer a sacrifice, an aroma, a fragrant gift to God, and that is worship of God for God, because of God, because of what God did for God, through God. Can we be any more clear? This is who God has called us to be. But as we said we live quorum Dio in light of this? Would we live every day realizing that God is imminent in our life? He's personable. 
He's active in our worship now. As we sing, God is sitting there on his throne and these words that we sing are not just empty or hollow. They're not just religiosity. It's not just something that we do. It's something we get to do because we worship God for what he has done. He was imminent in your darkest hour of your soul. When you cried out, the Spirit was already chasing you if you're a son or daughter of God. He's active, not just in your worship, but all of your life. We don't just see God's activeness, his presence in just our worship, but this is why all of our life is a living sacrifice. It's why God cares what you do in your business. It's why God says all throughout Proverbs that unjust scales are an abomination to me. This is why God cares about your uh, marriage, about how you love and lead your wife. This is why God cares about what's going on actively right now in our world. Because we are to do all things to the glory of God. All of our life is worship. How's the, when we look here, what will be the final thing we see God's eminence in in Judges 13? I think we'll see that God fulfills. Verses 24 through 25, that God fulfills. And the woman bore a son. And the woman bore a son. Now, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard a woman that is barren, bearing a child? Is it not all throughout Scripture with Hannah bearing Samson? Do we not see it with Sarah bearing Isaac? Where else do we see a woman bearing a son that is a promised son, that is the son the better son with Mary and the angel coming to Mary and saying, behold, you will give birth to a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. We see that God is fulfilling even in these first few words of verse 24. This promise that he made to Manoah and his wife has come to pass. He has fulfilled his promise. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mehanah Dan, between Zorah and Eshtiol. We see that she names him Samson, which means son-like. S-U-N, perhaps for the great appearance of the angel of the Lord. But commentators note, son, S-O-N-like is also a fitting description of Samson as he is, we we say about all of our judges in the book of Judges, an A-type, a foreshadowing of Christ. We'll see in Samson's life that he lives not this life of consecration that he's called to, but in direct contrast to Christ, he lives a life of iniquity. Although he was supposed to be dedicated from the womb, that Christ was dedicated to the Father's glory, not from the womb, but from the foundation of the world. We get to see that God's fulfillment was not only just in the bringing about of the Son, 
for Manoah and his wife is not just an individual fulfillment, but collectively for the nation of Israel and even for our benefit today. The nation of Israel needed deliverance. And we get to see in verse 25, in this, uh, the Lord, tell into verse 24, and the Lord blessed him. So this blessing him was with the strength that we're going to see that Samuel has. But also this blessing rolls into verse 25, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him began to stir him. The spirit was on Samson to be provoked to deliver Israel from their bondage. Had not the spirit provoked Samson to deliver Israel from the bondage, who knows if the nation of Israel would have continued. This was God's not only saving Israel, but this lineage of which we all as Gentiles have become blessed in. So how was God imminent? He fulfilled the promise of this child the strength to deliver Israel, and also the stirring, this provoking of Samson. God imminently fulfills his promises to his children throughout all history. Deuteronomy 7.9 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, to a thousand generations. This promise was made in the Old Testament and has carried along by the faithfulness of God to unfaithful children like you and I to a thousands, thousands of generations past us that we are simply in a relay race, that the gospel is the baton that's been handed to us and that we perhaps would be nameless men and women in Hebrews 11, the hero's hall of faith, that our life is to carry on this gospel to a thousand generations, not by our own strength, but by the faithfulness of God. That God fulfills his promises. The first promise of God, this first vow that God makes, as Samson will break his vow, God makes a vow in Genesis 3 when the sin of man entered into the world, he makes this promise, this covenant-keeping promise that through the offspring of Eve, that all the world will be blessed through Abraham, but that her seed will crush the head of the serpent. God fulfilled this vow in Christ, that when Christ came, his heel was bruised, but he crushed the head of the serpent. Do we live this way? Do you live this way? Do you live like Christ is reigning now? If you say yes so quickly or so flippantly, or you, this goes in one ear and out the other, I would ask you to qualify your answer. If God fulfills his vows, what keeps the church from being the church? What keeps us from going and faithfully confessing sin to one another? What keeps us from killing sin? What keeps us from evangelism? What keeps us from serving this community? What keeps us from going? Flesh, yes, but ultimately it's doubt. It's disbelief. It's the first sin of Adam and Eve, disbelief in God. Did God really say what he said? Would he really do what he would say he would do? Since Christ is reigning and ruling now, we have every means by which we need to go into this community and flip it on its head for the gospel. I look at your faces right now, and that sometimes, church, 
If that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. That we have the God of the universe living inside of us, that died for us, that is encouraging us, that is imminent, that is with us, that cares, that knows your longing cries, that forgives your sins, that shows you mercy, that enables your words to evangelize, that empowers your, your ability to love neighbor. The question we have to ask ourselves is, when we look at the church in the book of Acts, why do we think that the church advanced? Why do we think the gospel advanced? Because of Christ and him fulfilling his promise that he will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That we are, Acts 29, that we are entered into this and we have a role to play in this. That if your life is marked more by apathy than dependence on God, there is something awry. And this is not a, I hope it does not feel a, a sledgehammer beat over the head because I'm preaching this to myself first and foremost. That we're called to go and to live in light of this vow. We have a moral obligation. What do I mean by that? God is sovereign, absolutely. But if we read all throughout Scripture like we do in Philippians 2, Paul says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see God's sovereignty in our responsibility to work out. God will fulfill his vow. He already has. This is just the ramifications of it, the ripple effects, the reverberations, and we get to walk and play in it. We get the joy of entering into our Father's good grace, of knowing that he's imminent and he's with us and he cares. But if we just hear that message, like we talked about this first half, and we want to be comfortable in it, God's imminence is not to pat us on the back and say, sit. It is to encourage us and to be the wind in our sails to go. God's imminence should press us forward. God is a consuming fire. Our rest is not here. Our rest is an eternal rest. And church, you have everything you need knit up inside your bones in the fullness of the gospel in this gospel-centered community with men and women that I'm looking at right now that love Jesus and that love you and that love this city and that we want to see the gospel advanced. I pray we would live in a manner of believing that God is imminent and that he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. But if we are in this room this morning and hearing this message that God is imminent and treating it just as another way to self-placate, I pray God would have mercy on us. Just as I pray for the friend in this room that does not know the mercy of God. That is Christ and Christ alone crucified for your sin. That I pray that 
if you have heard this message of Christ crucified in your life for your sins, that you would repent and believe. Repent of a life lived to yourself, for yourself, by yourself, by your standards, opposed to God, making you the judge over God. And you would see that he has wrath stored up for those who would not repent, but nothing but the grace and the gift of life for those that are granted this gift of salvation and belief. So church, I pray we go in this message this week, knowing that God is imminent, that when you're tired, it's okay he is there. He is present. He sees your frame. He knows you. That when you pray, you would pray in a manner knowing that he hears, that he cares, and he answers the prayers of his children. That you live in a manner that is active and not passive because of the activity of God in your life. Resting fully on the foundation that the gospel of Christ was God's jewel of redemption. That he fulfilled the saving of sons and daughters. So church, will we go in light of this this week? So Father, thank you that you are gracious. That you know us intimately and that your imminence is both the best news we could ever hear and perhaps the most frightening that we could hear this morning all dependent upon you, Jesus, if you have saved us. But God, I I pray that this message of your imminence would be encouraging, that it would be reproving, but more than anything, that it would be effective and efficient to mobilize your church, to live a life, Coram Dio, before your face always, under your authority, for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you'll